This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, the new sensation of software as a service from years back is still the new sensation with massive growth in that sector. Lots of companies springing up to offer different types of software as a service and lots of companies changing the way they work to embrace the cloud and software as a service. Um, David Spitz joins us around. He's managing director of KeyBank's technology group. And uh, he's done some work uh, kind of looking at this industry uh, and where its biggest growth is. And David, I think one of the things that's most interesting to me is the this, this specialization across this industry that we're seeing in the last couple of years, where you don't have uh, necessarily a big, you know, an Oracle or even a Salesforce providing one notion of SaaS, but you've got lots of different and specific uh, uh, industry uh, uh, verticals uh, that have got their own solution. Absolutely. There are some great companies that have gone public, certainly, that uh, people in the in the public markets have been able to participate in. Viva just reported last night, probably the best example. But as you look out over the horizon at some of the private companies, there's some you know fantastic private companies that focus on either vertical markets in terms of a specialization or a specialized task. Uh, I'm thinking of like a SendGrid or a Twilio, which really are embraced by developers at an early stage in, in, in the development of a software program, but ultimately are serving very specific needs for developing interesting software. And as, as the companies that use them, as Uber grows and starts needing to send more emails, in the case of SendGrid, or connecting with, uh, with riders, um, in, in the case of Twilio, they use these uh, these programs, and these companies have done exceedingly well as a result, and it completely changes the game. David, there are thousands of companies in the SaaS space, private, public. Um, how should investors kind of filter through and understand which companies have kind of longer legs in this industry? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'd say it's probably more like tens of thousands, uh, and so it's an exciting area. Um, the, the, you know, you start with how they're performing, and everybody's focused on growth, of course, in the public markets, but in the private markets. And, and that's probably the first uh, focal point, you know, figuring out how big the market is, how, how, how big can the company grow within that, but how are they performing within that. And the survey that we did really starts uh, with understanding how big the companies are and how fast they're growing. And one of the, one of the key findings uh, was that it, as as strong as the growth is, and if you look at the public, there's about 60 companies that are public, publicly traded that people would say they're SaaS companies. It's about 250 billion dollars of market cap. Uh, the the average growth rate for those public companies, I'm not at the survey yet, is about 30 percent, which is obviously stellar. And you look at Salesforce. You mentioned that earlier, Corey. There, I see their tower just a few blocks away. That's about a third of the market cap. And you can see the tower from a lot more than a few blocks away. <laughs> it's yeah, quite the know, tower. You can see that building. Yeah, no, that's right. And and uh, they are stunningly growing at a twenty five percent rate uh, on a ten billion dollar revenue run rate, which is incredible. Although, but, all right, well, yeah. let me ask you about that. So, yes, they're growing at twenty 
plus percent, but they were going at 30 plus percent. Viva, uh, you mentioned uh, reporting last night, a year ago, third quarter grew at 34 percent. This quarter, only 23 percent. Stocks down 6 percent and meaningfully from its high of the year, uh, which was uh, $68 a share. It's trading at 53 and change now. So I wonder if the greatest growth for these companies uh, is is in their past. Well, certainly as you get bigger, it's hard to keep those growth rates going. So uh, there's no doubt that trajectory over time as you get bigger, it's, it's difficult to, to do that. Um, I, I don't cover the companies. I'm not on the research side. I'm on the banking side. But um, the growth rates of those companies are still pretty amazing, but certainly you know, not what they were when they were younger, even a year younger uh, in some cases. But um, what we are finding, though, is that uh, – you know, as much as growth is, uh, is, is such a critical metric, uh, it's pretty hard to grow at a 50% rate for a sustained period of time. And so as we look at the survey data, and we, we've, we've, uh, we've surveyed about 400 companies. It's a pretty big group, one of the biggest groups uh, of private companies assembled. We've asked pretty detailed questions. And one of the interesting findings is that while the median growth rate for those private companies is about 50%, right. once you start looking at bigger companies, companies that are greater than, let's say, $25 million in revenues, it's much lower. So the average growth rate is, is more like 25%. Right. And the right. ones growing north of 50%, it's just one in five. So yeah. it's pretty amazing what Viva and Salesforce are doing, given how big they are at this point. David Spitz, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Managing Director of Technology Group at KeyBank Capital Markets, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Neil Young, he, maybe he's the last one on the Bitcoin chain. Maybe he was the first, but uh, Dave Licka, a cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us right now, uh, as well as uh, John Sarson, Managing Partner at partner Blockchain Momentum. Uh, with a look at what's happening, uh, the latest in Bitcoin, and you know this this, this conversation about Bitcoin price, uh, uh, Dave, I find annoying because it's just a, I, I, I think actually the right tune would have been Spinal Tap there, because I feel like when we talk about Bitcoin price, all we're talking about is oh this one goes to eleven, yeah, big well, difference. But there's something going on here. It's gone to twelve today. On great, or actually thirteen. It's now thirteen thousand. Uh, hit before we came on. Yeah, high over over twelve thousand five hundred. Um, but I, I want to go back. Yeah, I, I said to you before we came in. I go, Corey and I have been talking about digital currencies for a long time on this show, and we've been talking about blockchain technology. But it seems like all of a sudden now that it's hitting these crazy le- levels, Dave, that everybody's now paying attention. Um, you know, what is the most significant thing about the Bitcoin story now, in your view? Well, it's got to be the futures. Um, if it they begin Sunday night in Chicago. And once that begins, it opens up the possibility of um, multiple um, institutional investors getting in, um, whether it's more hedge funds, um, whether it's the, and also the, the folks that own it now, whether they want to um, hedge their positions that they had already in it. Well, I was going to emphasize, you say hedge funds who actually might hedge. You can actually be at once. Those, uh, those contracts trade, you can actually be short Bitcoin for the first time ever. Yes, there's a there's some concern that this may lead to a, a big sell-off, but at the same time, uh, a lot of it is seen as protection on some very large, what they call wallets out there, of folks who are in very early. Business Week has a story that ta- takes a look at kind of the 
the potential for Bitcoin whales that are out there. And when those big trades start to go, uh, that's when the market and watching the market could be very interesting. John Sarson, I want to bring you in, managing partner at Blockchain Momentum. You're an advisory firm. What exactly do you guys do? You're on the phone from in Indianapolis. Thanks so much for having me on the program. Yeah. Um, so we are located out in Indianapolis. And, uh, you know, we exist to make investing safer for our clients. And so we got pulled into the cryptocurrency arena because safety is a major concern for a lot of our clients. Uh, how so? Uh, there's, a, there's a volatility associated with the asset class, which can be uh, very... Uh, very volatile, as you've seen, but there's also custody custody issues, as you were just uh, discussing. And until you can make sure that the assets are safe, none of our clients wanted to put significant money into this extremely exciting piece of the. Well, I guess market. I guess I understand what you mean by safe. What do you mean safe? You mean like they wouldn't get deleted from a wallet? Yeah, they can get deleted from a wallet. They can get stolen from wallets. You can get they can get um, miss sent to. Uh, into the ether of the internet and lost forever. And there's been instances of that happening to people. So when it comes to protecting the custody of a security, you know, we've got that figured out as an industry very well. We do a great job at that. And the biggest players in the, in the cryptocurrency space, companies like Coinbase, have made these announcements that they're going to be offering these, these custody services. But until those custody standards are really up to par, it's the onus of the individual investor or the individual investment manager to make sure that their process is getting this exposure in a way that's safe for their clients. And that's what we spend a lot of time doing, uh, managing uh, the custody issues. Dave Litka, uh, do you see Bitcoin eventually evolving into kind of a very legitimate currency? Well, that's the big question that everybody's asking now. Um, Everybody, we have central banks looking at virtual currencies, um, whether it's this form or another. It just seems like the natural progression of, of finance on it. I mean, we already, most transactions are conducted electronically already on it, whether it becomes to a, a fiat currency at some point. Um, that's what people are looking for. This seems to be um, the uh, early prototype for that minus central bank John, we've heard of some anecdotes about, um, uh, you know, uh, retail investors betting big um, and and uh, maybe not knowing what they're involved and they just want to get in. And you hear stories about people being asked over Thanksgiving uh, by family members, should we be buying Bitcoin, those kinds of things. Are you seeing a change in the kind of investor coming into Bitcoin? Uh, well, we've seen, uh, we, we have seen a real increase in interest in Bitcoin. You know, one of the ways that we value Bitcoin... Is wait, 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 clarify. Interest or actual investments in? Both. And uh, we, can, we can measure the interest in based on the number of unique addresses or unique digital wallets that interact with the Bitcoin blockchain. And we can measure the interest from an investment standpoint in the, in the price appreciation of Bitcoin. So over the last 30 days, the price of Bitcoin is up 87%. But the number of unique uh, Bitcoin wallets interacting with the blockchain is actually up more. It's up 114% over the last 30 days. So the Metcalf value ratio that we use to determine is Bitcoin in a bubble right now has actually decreased in the last 30 days in spite of this big price move for Bitcoin. All right. I just got to tell you, John, Dave Litka of Bloomberg News is kind of shaking his head. I'm driving in my car. 
I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, Carol Master drives me crazy, but J.J. Kinahan is here <laughs> to save us with the drive to the close. Uh, J.J. Kinahan uh, with us uh, from uh, Chicago, Chief Market Strategist at Ameritrade. And uh, J.J., when you look at this market, the question of the day seems to be, have things changed in the last couple of weeks? Um, I, I don't know if things necessarily changed that significantly. I think what has changed is we're getting to the end of the year on a year where, you know, the major indices have really done well and people are caught in a little bit of a quandary and that is as they start to rotate sectors, etc., as we tend to see at this time of year, how much do they do or how much do they wait for a new tax bill because it might make more sense to do some of this in well, January. Let me ask you this, JJ. Are your taxes going to go up or down? In this bill, have you well, I think no. Well, I, I I think that that's the quandary everyone's facing, and that's why these moves are kind of herky jerky because people will do a little bit, and then they're like, "Well, hold on, let's consider." Because here's today's news out of Washington. So until well, no kidding, we, exactly. But but yeah. but for you for you specifically, have you figured it out yet? I have not figured it out yet because I don't know for sure what's going to be in the bill. But are there provisions that concern you? Uh, there are provisions that concern me, as are, and, and, and I think concerns uh, all retail investors. And that is, there is a small part in there, Section 13533. And what that does is, if you are a retail investor, it will force you to do all your stock profits in a first-in, first-out manner. For really quickly, for those who aren't as familiar. Wait, no, 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 we just, we just did a whole segment on this just moments ago. Oh, we're, we're on it. I, I apologize. Uh, no, 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 no. It's a, it's a, you're, you're dead on. It's a big change. It's one that I didn't know about until today. One of the many big changes in this bill about the way taxes are calculated. It's yet one more thing that has the intended consequence of raising more taxes, has the uh, unintended consequence or intended consequence of raising taxes on people who trade stocks, people like, uh, you know, not me anymore because I don't trade stocks, although, you know, I've got other investments, but and certainly our listeners, it has the unintended consequences of hurting charitable donations and so on. It does, and if I could add one thing to it, so we at TD Ameritrade, I actually do a lot of our government uh, stuff. We sent an email to all members of Congress. We've, we've been bombarding them with stuff, and we have a website set up. You don't have to be a TD Ameritrade client. You can just be a retail client. It's TD Ameritrade backslash take action, and you can put in your zip code right to your senator, right to your congressman, let them know this is a concern because particularly for people who are in the retirement age, you know, as we know, many people who have accumulated stock over years in their company, this could be a huge deal and it's not you won't see it now you won't see it till the end of the next year all of a sudden you'll be like where did this huge tax bill come from so for the you know we represent 11 million clients here for the average person listening to your show this is a very big deal uh, it's interesting. Financial uh, sector certainly a very powerful one when it comes to lobbying down in Washington. And when folks are looking at re-election, I mean, a lot of money comes from the financial sector. I mean, are they not? What kind of conversation? What's the dialogue that you folks are having with lawmakers? 
Well, I think that one of the things that they have to, uh, we hope people understand is this is not a Wall Street issue. This is a Main Street issue. Because as we talk about, you know, the average person saving for retirement or being in retirement, they're getting affected. There's actually an exemption for mutual funds on this. So, you know, it, it's not uh, even necessarily the big Wall Street firms coming in. We're, we're doing this on behalf of the, av- the average person. And the great thing about it is when you can say, hey, here are, you know, 23,000 or 30,000 people in your district and they are directly affected by it hopefully that makes a big difference it's the people that you know they're there to represent and we hope they keep that in mind uh drama uh with the tax bill what does that mean for you know what, what do you see clients doing with their money uh, uh given the environment of a market that is up you know s&p 500 up 17 percent for the year uh questions about what the tax bill is going to mean and what it's going to mean for people in high tax states like illinois and Mm-hmm. New York, New Jersey, um, and, and Californians, you know, the like. Right. I mean, the, the, the salt obviously is a big bill for a big concern for people who live in states like we do, where maybe the state hasn't managed money quite as well. But from our client point of view, I think there's a few things. Number one, as you just mentioned, uh, unfortunately, not enough people know about this this proposal uh, for LIFO versus FIFO. And the other thing is uh, where we started, people aren't sure what to do at the end of the this year. And so I think this adds up to what could be one of the most interesting last weeks mm-hmm. or 10 days of the year as we start to get more certainty around what's in this bill. And people are going to have to take quick action to figure out, do I take profits in 17? Do I take profits in 18? How do I roll things over? So it could be set up for guys for a really, really crazy last two weeks of the year. Are you starting to see any momentum along those lines of people pulling out, selling now before there could be any kind of changes? Well, I, I think it wasn't even necessarily tax-related, where we started talking about you know what's been going on the last two weeks. You saw the tech sector, I think, people starting to take profits there, but then it was like the some news came out of Washington that, hold on, maybe capital gains won't be, so people sort of stopped for a second, and I think that's the action you're going to continue to see, is that news out of what might be in the bill or how things are being negotiated may encourage or discourage people from taking action, so it really is amazing, you know, normal Normally, I'm not a big believer in taking cues from outside forces you can't control, but this is one time where you can directly see the correlations. I uh, just want to mention a headline crossing since we're speaking taxes. The Citigroup uh, chief financial officer uh, speaking at an investor conference and saying that they see a $20 billion charge, $20 billion charge if the Senate tax bill passes. Forgive me, that's kind of a blind number because I don't know what that, uh, you know, what they're currently paying at this point, but um, we're starting to get some headlines uh, in regards to that. Um, JJ, uh, so you're not seeing anything yet, but I guess, you know, like you said, it could be an interesting month. Just got about uh, 15 seconds here. Yeah, it, it, it should be a fun last few weeks. I don't think anybody's going to be leaving early for vacations between Christmas and New Year's this year. Nobody takes vacations anymore. He just dropped a stay <laughs> tuned on us, didn't he? <laughs> JJ Kinahan, Chief Market Strategist at TD, TD Ameritrade. $1.1 trillion in assets under management. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy 
holiday. Yes, indeed. Hard to believe we're smack in the middle of the holiday season already. Um, and I, I don't know if, you know, middle your shopping online or other, if you notice this story, because Walmart has actually changed its legal name from Walmart Stores to Walmart Inc. It's really a sign of the times and the ongoing and growing role of online, the importance of it in the world of retail. I want to do, uh, I want to dive into kind of the retail sector right now. Greg Portel back with us, lead partner of consumer industries and retail practice at the consulting firm A.T. Carney, uh, based in Chicago, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Welcome back. Thank you. It is kind of interesting, significant, right? Well, it, it does signal a turning the page. I mean, consumers have always Got kind of time re- Walmart. <laughs> well, consumers have always kind of referred to them as Walmart. It really hasn't been a. It's very yeah. rare that people get hung up on the formal legal names of companies, but it does have a, a certain symbolism to it as they close that book of being a brick and mortar only type of company. And they were a little behind the times in it, and they really had played catch up with the acquisition of Jet.com, a much smaller company, but they got a company that got it, and then more importantly, they got the head of Jet.com that got it. Well, and what they did is what retailers struggle to do. They committed to the sector and went after it. The mistake many retailers make is they do one-off dip their toe in the water. And at this point, I think we have to acknowledge online sales are going to stay. So a company like Walmart needed to make that big move to really start rolling the ball downhill. I mean, that was an expensive move. It was a very expensive move. I mean, which is to say, it's not that they spent a lot of money. They spent a lot of money and didn't get a lot for it. Well, it, it built a cornerstone or set a cornerstone that they could build additional elements onto. If they would have just done it in a, in a vacuum or in a silo, it would have been a bit disappointing. But they, they hung a lot of ornaments on that tree. They spent $3.3 billion, cash and stock deal. But you're right. It kind of says to the world, maybe to investors, to analysts, hey, we're serious about this? Well, yes, and even more so to their competitors. Because it mm-hmm. put them in a position where they can go head-to-head against anyone in any space uh, across multiple platforms, which they couldn't effectively do before. So when, when we look at this company uh, um, and its growth online, I mean, is it Walmart versus Amazon? Is, is, is it every retailer versus Amazon? Well, there are a few retailers that can really look to compete against Amazon across multiple dimensions. So if you think about a store like a Walmart or a Kroger or a Target, those companies are positioned to go against Amazon across most of the categories, across most of the retail experiences that consumers are looking for. So in that sense, they are one of the few companies that can have a broad-based competition for for Amazon, as opposed to some of the other companies that are niche players in particular categories or particular industries. What's your take on brick and mortar right now? Well, brick and mortar is is under pressure because they've lost a little bit of the experience they're trying to to bring. So we, we you know, nobody's going to go to a brick and mortar store because it's convenient anymore. Mm-hmm. It used to be that was you go to a mall because they would have a lot of stores under one roof and you could have a lot of different things at one time. Well, the internet brings that to your phone wherever you are at any given time. So for brick and mortar to be successful, they really have to create an experience or a reason to be there. And it doesn't necessarily have to be climbing walls and and, theme park rides, but it does need to be something that allows you as a shopper to enjoy the experience of being But what is that? Is it, you know, wine when you walk in the store? Or what is it? Like, I don't get that. I know one person that would work for, Carol. (laughs) 
Um, I'm not no, talking but, about me. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, what what do they mean? Is it virtual reality? What well, is th- it? Is th- it like think, great decorations? Well, think about the Apple keep, Store. Keep, yeah. When when you go into an Apple Store, I go because I have already know that I'm going to buy a new phone, or I'm going to buy. Like I've already made my family. We've already made the decision. We've done all the research. We just go in because we want to do it. And you get, you get a knowledgeable salesperson. You get I don't somebody care. I've that, done my research. Oh, that's good. But, but if you look at <laughs> the number of saying, people that are at the, at the geek desk, yeah. people genius use bar. that. The I, genius, I was going to say, genius, I, yes, the genius I go because I know I'm about to be annoyed at the genius bar. <laughs> right. Well, uh, it, it's where you can actually get a knowledgeable salesperson, Greg, and a great experience. What does it mean for a department store? Well, that's what? where you're struggling. That's Those are the companies that are stuck in the middle because to get a high-quality sales associate who actually knows the categories that they're trying to sell or that a consumer is trying to buy, those are valuable resources. Yeah. And a department store that has so many categories that are more or less not differentiated really struggles with that. So when you ask the question about what's happening with brick and mortar, if they don't give you holiday windows, great experiences, holiday joy, and they try to make it a convenience experience, you can run in and run out and get something, it's going to struggle because that value proposition just doesn't resonate with consumers in today's landscape. So what's the role of the discounters, of the Costco's and so on in this world? Where, where is that putting pressure on uh, some of those bigger companies, the, the, the department stores and so on? Well, they're the ones that have really accelerated that need to to differentiate on the experience because the the big department stores have legacy cost structures that are almost impossible to get out from under. Mm. So they can never really compete on price against a, a dollar general or a dollar store of any structure because they, they just can't pay the they can't pay the bills. I also think it has to do with an identity. You walk into a Costco or a BJ's or whatever, and you're like, I know what I'm getting. Like I, it's you know, it's like Home Depot for <laughs> consumer goods. You know what I mean? Right. Like like you just you know it. There's a, a clear identity, and I think department stores have kind of lost their identity uh, at this point. Right, and something you bring up Home Depot, which is an interesting one, because if you want to go back to a knowledgeable sales associate, that's a company that actually invested recently, a couple of years ago, in yeah. actually upskilling their sales force because people weren't going in to buy a hammer; they were going in to understand how to build a, a, a right. bench. And almost every time I go to Home Depot, if I'm by myself, I'm, I'm always going to ask somebody a question. Um, Greg Portell, fun to have you back. Thank Happy you. holidays. Happy holidays. Have a good one. Lead partner of Consumer Industries and Retail Practice at the uh, advisory firm A.T. Carney, based in Chicago, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in New York City. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Everybody, time for your movers and shakers, winners and losers on this Wednesday afternoon. Carol Master along with Corey Johnson. Taking a look at the S&P 500. Not just Corey Johnson, but yes. Did I say just Corey Johnson? No, I said, I'm saying not just. We've got all stars in the house, but let us continue. <laughs> all right, S&P 500, what do we got? I'll hardly move today. 231 names, though, in the index higher today. 270 lower. So a little bit of a bearish slant, if you will, for unchanged. And uh, Corey, I'm sure you shop there all the time. Vera Bradley. 
Of course, yes. I, I, what, I don't even know if Vera Bradley They is. make bags and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, shares gaining the most in nearly two years as the company shifts away from a clearance model to its more, quote, sustainable Vision 2020 plan, driving uh, SG&A costs lower and a bottom line beat. Jeffrey's analyst uh, Randall Connick writing out in a note. Check this out, Corey. Stock's up almost, uh, well, 27.6%, almost 28%, more than 2 bucks, closing at 11.03 a share. Still down though, even with that move up, still down about 6%. So obviously trying to redo their model uh, in an upbeat note, helping the stock out a lot today. Um, yes, I've been trying to move my SG&A product costs lower as well. <laughs> Aren't we all? You sound like my husband. All right. My friend uh, Carson Block was on uh, with uh, my other friend Eric Schatzker today. I only have two friends and I you. I heard that. Um, and uh, uh, they were discussing a company called OSI Systems. Carson uh, is the uh, ha- runs a firm called Muddy Waters Capital mm-hmm. uh, and is known for short some companies and doing some really deep research uh, on a very small handful of names. Uh, to, to put it bluntly, when Carson talks, people listen. And he came out talking about OSI today. Uh, it sent the stock tumbling, stock down 29% on the day. A uh, huge volume. Uh, average value traded uh, was up a lot uh, on a percentage basis. Uh, and of course, the sentiment of the stock quite negative on the day, but a 29% decline. After he talked about, among other things, a major contract uh, that, that he says is, a, is an uneconomic contract for the customer uh, is is up in Mexico, up for renewal. And he thinks that the contract, the pricing is egregious in his words, and that uh, it means uh, an enormous amount to this company, uh, in, uh, about uh, uh, over 50% of revenues from this one contract or of profits from this contract. So he says that contract goes away. Much of the profits go away. Stock collapses, but he saw we saw the stock collapse today uh, on his reporting on that story. Hey, uh, I'm a little obsessed with the toy companies because I just keep noticing Mattel popping up on the bigger, you know, the, the, the most significant winners and losers, if you will, when it comes to the S and P 500. They are shares of Mattel. That is uh, one of the biggest laggards, the third biggest decliner in the S and P, down uh, about five percent in today's session. Keep in mind they were up about twenty nine percent in the month of November. But as I mentioned, uh, taking a little bit of a hit today, down almost 80 cents at 15.16 a share. Mattel shares for the year down 45 percent. You know, it was last month, uh, back in November, that uh, we had those stories kicking around about Hasbro approaching Mattel for a toy mega merger. And I just find that this stock keeps keeps popping up on the the list, and no new news, um, but uh, nonetheless out there. I just wanted to point it out. And uh, Viva Systems, uh, Dan, we mentioned just briefly, we were talking about the SaaS business, software and service. Viva focuses on uh, software specifically managed to manage drug trials. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the business has been growing wonderfully, but 23% growth in the last quarter is the slowest growth has ever been. The bookings number, quite often they'll raise the bookings estimates, uh, that is for future revenues. That did not happen in, in this case. Uh, they kind of stayed with where they were. And the result was Wall Street didn't love these results. Stock was down uh, 7% on the day, Viva Systems, trading $54 a share uh, and and a lovely uh, 70 times earnings. But uh, uh, the revenue growth rate falling now to 23%. Uh, and on a net income basis, uh, so we see, however, net income grew 59% uh, year over year. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Mr. Yep, it's that time of the day for the stock of the day from our Bloomberg Stocks editor, Dave Wilson. And Dave, Fred's. Indeed. Fred's was supposed to have bought hundreds of Rite Aid drugstores by now. 
The owner of general merchandise stores and pharmacies had a deal with Walgreens Boots Alliance, which was pursuing a $9.4 billion takeover of Rite Aid. That agreement fell apart after Walgreens gave up on an outright purchase of Rite Aid in June. And that hasn't been the only setback this year for Fred's, whose symbol, as you might expect, is Fred, F-R-E-D. Wouldn't it be funny if it was something different? Yeah, it would be. I, I digress, not. but anyway, go ahead. But I'll tell you what's not funny, Carol, is looking mm. at their quarterly results. Losses have piled up at the company as goods have gone unsold. The latest setback occurred in the fiscal third quarter and was reported today. Fred's adjusted loss was $0.42 cents a share, more than triple the average analyst estimate in the Bloomberg survey. Sales missed projections by the widest margin in more than a decade. What's more... Fred stopped paying dividends for the first time since 1993, the year after going public. And the company laid out plans to explore options for its real estate and specialty pharma unit as well. Put that all together, Fred's shares fell almost 19% to their lowest price since 1999. And for the year, they're down 78%. That would be the biggest annual loss on record. For this company. That's a big drop, no doubt about it. All right, Dave, thank you so much. Bloomberg Stocks columnist Dave Wilson with the Bloomberg Stock of the Day. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.